Okay, Bokatov, this morning we have the privilege of studying Parshas Vayetze. As we continue to plow, bless you through Sefer Bracious and the story of our Avos. Stories which are not only historical, but stories which are supposed to inform and inspire not just our past, but our present and our future. Our Parsha, of course, begins where last week left off. Yaakov is fleeing after he took the bracha last week. We pointed out at the end of the Parsha, maybe we pointed out, I don't remember if we pointed out, that it's uh, somewhat peculiar at the end of last week. Yitzchak has an interaction with Yaakov after he takes the bracha. One would have expected Yitzchak to challenge Yaakov. What are you doing? How could you violate my trust? What were you thinking? Does Yitzchak do that? No. Does Yitzchak ever confront Yaakov? We don't know from the text itself. We know that Yitzchak tells him, be careful who you marry. He gives him a bracha and he sends him on his way. So Yaakov is off on his way. And the Pasuk says, Vayetze Yaakov. Yaakov leaves. And Rashi, of course, comments the famous statement of Rashi that, It should have said not Vayetze Yaakov left, but Vayelech, where he went to. Right? If I'm telling you that I'm going somewhere, I don't say, I left Boca and I went to New Jersey. I say, I'm going to New Jersey. So why Vayetze? Why he left? Why not Vayelech, where he went to? Lama Iskiritziyoso. Rashi in the famous comment quotes from the uh, Medrash Magach Yisias Sadikman Amakum Osa Roshim that when a person a righteous person leaves a place it has an impact that righteous person's presence was always felt and when the presence is no longer there that Roshim it leaves an indelible impression their absence creates an impression when the righteous person is in the city. He is the praise of the city. He's the countenance of the city. He's the glory of the city. But Yatsum Isham, when the righteous person leaves, Panahoda, Panaziva, Panahadra. So it's telling us that Yaakov leaving had a tremendous impact. Of course, you can't help but wonder that Yaakov left, but who remained? Who else remained? Yitzchak. It's a little bit of an insult, perhaps, to Yitzchak. Yaakov, when a righteous person leaves, the whole city caves in. Yeah, a righteous person leaves, the whole city no longer has its glory, its countenance, its glow. What about Yitzchak? Was Yitzchak's righteousness not enough to produce that kind of glow for the city? Okay, so that's a question for another time. We're going to go through these psukim, that's what I want to analyze more in depth at the beginning. So let's get back to the overview, we'll look at it. So Yaakov leaves, he flees Beersheva, he's heading towards Haran, and of course he lays his weary head to rest, and he has the famous dream the ladder, the angels, this is the part that we're going to investigate more closely momentarily. When he wakens from the dream, he has this epiphany, this realization, something that he apparently hadn't known before. What was this new discovery that he didn't know before? We'll see. And when he has this new discovery, he does something unusual. He makes a pledge, he makes a promise to Hashem. He cuts a deal, which at first glance we would think that we would criticize and condemn not applaud or endorse. Yaakov wakes up and he says, Okay, God, impressive. I had a dream that you're here. Well, here's the deal. If you're with me, and you'll guard me on this path that I'm going, and you'll give me food to eat and clothing to wear, if you do all those things, give me a life of, of livelihood, of sustenance, of peace, of serenity, V'shavti b'shalom al-beisavi, and I'll return to my home, my father's house, peacefully. Only then, v'ayah Hashem li lalokim. Then I'll choose you as a God. Do we encourage making deals with Hashem? 
you're my God when everything's going well. And when things are not going well, when I'm suffering, struggling, then eh, I'm not so sure if you exist. Of course not. So what's Yaakov doing here? What's the story with this neder? Yaakov makes this promise. I think we studied this two years ago. If you want to listen to the Pasha class online, there's a lot to talk about. Why is Yaakov making a neder, cutting a deal? And of course, he then has this uh, unusual obsession with rocks. Yaakov loves stones. The 12 stones he puts under his head that form one stone. When he has 12 tribes, when he has 12 sons, he asks them to each bend down and pick up a stone and together he makes a monument. When he makes a peace treaty, he builds a monument out of stone. Over and over again, we see Yaakov's connection with stones. What connection might that be? Also more for you to think about. Yaakov then goes to the well and uh, meets his wife, Rachel, at the well. She is struggling to get the large stone off the top of the well. The other shepherds are not helping. They're in conflict. Yaakov, who doesn't even know them, comes and he gives them a uh, rebuke. They say yes. And then he tells them, Yaakov gives them a good patch. He says, what are you doing? Your kid's not quitting time. You can't go call it a day. The sun is high in the sky. You're paid to be shepherds. Go, get out there with your flock and shepherd them, whatever that means. But the day is not over yet. What are you doing? I think it's of Yaakov Kamenetsky. I don't remember. Who notes, where in the world does Yaakov come off giving them rebuke? He's just met them. What's in his business? He walks up to a well and he sees a bunch of people. The well is the water cooler. The well is the water cooler. And he sees these employees schmoozing around the water cooler and he says to them, hey, you paid for work. Get back to work. What are you doing? Who is he? What's in his business? So I believe it's a Yaakov Kamenetsky who says, you know why Yaakov is successful at giving them the rebuke? Because you know what he says first? He calls them Achai. My brothers. Where are you from? Mecharana. Oh, do you know Lavan, my uncle? First, he creates a personal connection. You can't do outreach. You can't give rebuke or criticism. You can't comment on someone else if you don't have a personal connection and investment in them. Yaakov succeeds in making them believe. Achai. My, hey, brother. What's going on? It's like Yaakov is a Rabshalom Brother, what's going on? Achai. Me'ayinatem. Hey, brothers. Where are you from? Where are you from, brother? And only once he creates that personal connection, that investment, the emotional investment, then he's able to give that rebuke. And of course, he uh, succeeds in removing this large stone, and Rachel brings him home to her father, Lavan, and uh, the pressure continues. Why did Yaakov specifically meet Rachel at a well? Where did Eliezer find Rivka? At the well. So we also talked about this in the past, you can listen online. We creatively titled it, The Women of the Well. Women of the well. Anyway, why did why did our of us, why did our patriarchs find their wives at the well? What connection is there between our matriarchs and the concept of a well? The women of the the, the tradition of the Jewish women and the women of the of the will. So Lavan brings uh, Rachel rather brings Yaakov home. Yaakov contracts to marry. Of course, the old switcheroo is pulled. Leah is substituted for Rachel. Rachel ultimately is rewarded greatly for giving the signs. The Medrash says that Yaakov got basically what he deserved. You tricked your father. Now you were tricked. right? You found signs that tricked your father. Now signs were given that tricked you. right? Midah connected Midah. You got what you deserved. Yaakov uh, marries Rachel, but has to agree to work 14 years in total. Leah starts to give birth to her sons. 
and the Rachel sees that she's not given birth. She's fulfilled through, Bi, uh, through Bila. We have the story of Reuven, who comes back with the Dudaim, and he comes to his mother Leah. Rachel says to Leah, makes the, the trade. Leah has three more children. Leah calls her son uh, Yehuda. Fourth son, she calls Yehuda. Pamodes Hashem. The Gemara says that Leah is the first to give gratitude to Hashem. It's not a coincidence that Parshas Vayetze always falls Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Hapamodes Hashem. Leah is the first to give Thanksgiving. She's the first one. What do you mean, Leah is the first? Noach didn't build a Mizbeach when he survived the flood and came out of the Teva. Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov never said thank you to Hashem. Vayashkem Avram Baboker, Avram Davin, he didn't say thank you. Vayetze Yitzchak, Vasuach Basada, he didn't say thank you. Vayifka Yaakov Bamakom, all three introduced Fila, Shachras, Minchamarav, they didn't say thank you. How is Leah's thank you different than the thank yous of those who preceded her? Such that the Gemara can comment, no one gave a proper thank you. No one had gratitude until Leah had this fourth son. When Leah had this son, Yehuda, oh, that's when she gave, that's when she said thank you. What is the root of thank you that Leah gives this thank you? More for you to think about. Okay, so the, um, I'll give you a hint. Rashi says, Leah did the math. Yaakov had four wives, two wives and two maidservants. He knew he was destined, she knew he was destined to have 12 sons. Even Leah, even we can do that math. 12 divided by four is three. And even allocation would have each wife having three sons. When Leah had that fourth son, she felt, wow, I am totally and utterly undeserving. It was unexpected, it was utterly undeserving. She felt so humbled that it was only the graciousness, the goodness, the benevolence of the Almighty that she received something she felt unworthy of. Real gratitude is the humility and the modesty to say, I, have, I don't live with a sense of entitlement. You could live with a sense of entitlement. You could get what you feel you deserve and say thank you for it. And you're saying thank you as a courtesy. You're saying thank you as a social contract. You're saying thank you because that's what you're supposed to do. It's courtesy. It's etiquette. There's a thank you that's etiquette, and there's a thank you in your core, where you weren't entitled, and you didn't feel you deserved, and you got something beyond your imagination. And that thank you, that is the ultimate thank you. That was the thank you of Leah. She was the first to give that thank you. To live life with a sense of not entitlement, not what I deserve, I'm utterly undeserving, and yet, and yet I give thank you. I'll tell you my favorite Rav Hudner, I've probably shared it with you before. Rav Hudner says that the word... Yehuda, Apam Odeh Hashem. By the way, we're called Yehudim because we model ourselves after. We're a nation of gratitude, a nation of humility, a nation of appreciation, a nation of thankfulness. So Thanksgiving for us is not just one day, although nothing wrong with celebrating it, but uh, Thanksgiving for us is every day. Every day is Thanksgiving. I've also shared the Avudraham. Why is it the Amida, the only part of the Chazar Sashat that the Chazan repeats, that we say something also. There's 19 brachas in the Amidah. I listen to the Chazan for 18 of them. I say Amen. There's one bracha that he says, it's actually not the bracha, it's the continuation of the bracha, but Hoda, that we have our own, Modim Durabonan. He says one Modim, and we say our own Modim, Modim Durabonan. Why? Says the Avudraham, the great Avudraham, because you can't outsource gratitude. 
Yeah, the chazan can represent you turning to God, saying, give all of us a livelihood, give all of us good health, give all of us justice, give all of us Yerushalayim, bring all of us redemption. We can outsource and we can be represented through agency to ask God for all those things. But gratitude, you can't outsource gratitude. You can't do give gratitude through an agent, through a third party. You have to be grateful yourself. So modem, you have to say yourself. So says Rafutner, the Hebrew word for gratitude is Hoda, Modim, Mode, Yehuda, Pa Hashem. To be Mode means two things, says Rafutner. Not coincidentally, it means both gratitude and it also means an admission. If I want to say to you, I admit, you say, uh, hey Goldberg, you owe me a hundred bucks. And I want to say, you're, you know what, you're right. I admit I owe you a hundred dollars. What do I say? I admit to you about the thing that. So you could be modele and modeal, grateful for or admit about. Why does that same word mode mean both thank you and to make an admission? Said Rafutner Zatzal, at the root and core of every expression of gratitude is an admission that I needed you. At the core of every expression of thank you is a person saying, my life was enhanced because of you. And without you having done that thing, I would be lacking. There is an admission. An admission. You gave me something without which I wouldn't have had it. So that same word, modem, means thank you and admission at the root of everything. That's why you find, at least I find, arrogant people have trouble saying thank you. Arrogant people have trouble saying thank you. They literally struggle. It's a perfunctory, it's an etiquette thank you. It's not the thank you of, I'm grateful in my core. Because gratitude is an exercise in humility. Gratitude is an exercise in dependence. Gratitude means I needed you and my life wouldn't have been the same without you. And arrogant people want to feel I don't need you or anybody. I have everything. Myself. And I don't need help from anyone. Arrogant people struggle to say thank you. Thank you is an exercise in humility. So Leah is grateful when she has her fourth son. And this is what the Torah, the Gemara comments. She is the first who gave real gratitude. And the insight is that real gratitude is not etiquette, it's not courtesy. Real gratitude is not even for the recipient of the gratitude. I don't say thank you because you need to hear thank you. I say thank you because I need to be grateful. Moshe doesn't strike the Nile. Why doesn't Moshe strike the Nile? He doesn't carry out the first two plagues. His brother Aaron does. Why? Rashi quotes the famous Medrash. We learned it when we were five years old. The Nile saved his life. It would be ungrateful for him to strike the Nile. He said, oh, that's cute. Yeah, that's cute. Now strike the Nile saved his life. He shouldn't hit it. Don't hit the Nile. As if the Nile has feelings. The Nile's an inanimate object. What, what, what does the Medrash mean? Is it a child, childish Medrash? No, it's a profound Medrash. It means that gratitude is not for the recipient. In the case of the Nile, it's, a intang- it's, it's not a real person. That recipient, there's no recipient. Nevertheless, Moshe had to say thank you, so to say, even to an inanimate object. Because thank you is an exercise for the giver of the thanks, not for the recipient. We say thank you as an exercise in humility. Rachel finally conceives, she gives birth to Yosef. Yaakov is ready to leave the home of Lavan. Yaakov understands that he can't raise his children. This is a theme also within the Avos. The identification, the realization of a healthy environment for our children and when it's time to leave. Rav Goldvich suggests that the name Lavan 
comes from Lo Ben. Lavan is not concerned with continuity. Lo Ben, not no children, not the future, not the next generation. Lavan is not about the influence on children, the home, the continuity, the values, the transmission of a legacy. Lavan is about the here and now, the selfishness, the ego. Yaakov says, I can't raise children in that environment. I'm trying to raise the future of the Jewish people, and it's time to go. Lavan deceives him again. We have the story of the goat, the spotted, the speckled. And then uh, Yaakov gets the consent of his wives, another important lesson of our avos. Don't do anything without the consent of your wives. He leaves. Lavan chases him. There's a confrontation. Lavan proposes a treaty. And what do they do at the end? Yaakov tells his sons, Yaakov turns to his 12 sons and he says, Everybody take a stone. And they gather the stones and they make a mound. And they eat there on their mound. Yaakov calls the place Yigar Sahadusa. Uh, Lavan calls it rather Yigar Sahadusa. And Yaakov gives it another name. He calls it Gal Eid. Right? What's the significance of the different names they give? You can look at the Mephoshim for another time. But the Parsha ends the way it began. Yaakov's collecting stones. What is the metaphor of stones? And why is the appeal to Yaakov? What is the symbol of stones that appeals to Yaakov that our Parsha, like bookends, begins with Yaakov gathering stones and ends with Yaakov gathering stones? I'll leave that for you to think about. Let's go back to the beginning of the Parsha. That's what we're going to investigate together this morning. Okay. Perak Chavches Pasuk Yud. It's the beginning of our Parsha, page 144 in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash. Okay. Says the Pasuk, Vayetze Yaakov mi Be'er Shava, Vayelech Charana. Yaakov leaves Be'er Shava, and he's heading towards Charan. We already read Rashi about the Roshim, the impression that an absence leaves. Look at the Kliyakar. Kliyakar is bothered. Perish Rashi, Yatzarach, Lukhtov, Elavayelach, Yaakov, Arana. Elamagaj, Yitzhiyat, Salik, Menamakim, Osa Roshim. As we said, this describes that when a person leaves a community, a person's absence is, uh, a person's absence is greatly felt. I was, uh, yesterday I went up to Tinek for the funeral of uh, Dr. Yitzhak Belazan who was an uh, old-timer in Tinek, uh, our member, Avram Belazan's father. And uh, the theme, I would say, of his Levaya was that uh, Yitzhiyas Tzadik Menamokum Osiroshim. He was a person those uh, who are from Tinek know. And uh, very apropos, Yaakov's dream of the ladder going up and down, but a person rooted in his uh, professional achievement and success, in uh, a very successful doctor, but his head was always in the base Medrash, always in learning. And uh, the great community of Tinek was not always uh, what it is now, the way people think of it. So um, I spoke at the funeral. I spoke as a uh, person who grew up in Teaneck 30 years ago and remembering a time when there were pioneers, early pioneers, like a Yitzhak Belazan, who, uh, who filled in between Menchamarev and taught the Daf Yomi and gave shiurim and remained an icon and a symbol for a number of generations of young people of what it means to be committed to Torah and to be able to climb that ladder that is uh, grounded in earth and goes up to the heavens. So the theme was that that when a person leaves, it makes it makes a roshim. Their absence is felt in a community as well. So back to the kliyakar. I don't understand. Yaakov is the first to leave a city. 
Avram and Yitzchak also traveled. Avram was lechlacha. Right, Avram, the very first test that he faced was leaving his hometown. Why didn't anyone comment there that Avram left his hometown and it left a huge impression? Why don't we comment that Yitzchak is making the rounds all over Israel and it makes a huge impression? Only with Yaakov asks the Kliyakar. V'yesh panam lekan, v'ulekan, ki lepum riyato lerabusa nakar kan v'yetze. Ki Avram v'yitzchak lo inicha b'makam shalachu misham tzadik kamosam. Kliyakar gives a fantastic answer. Says the Kliyakar. When Avram and Yitzchak left a place, who was left? Nobody. There was no one righteous. No leader left. So it was obvious that their leaving left an impression. But when Yaakov leaves, who's left? Yitzchak and Rivka. So you might have thought, oh, Yaakov left, but Yitzchak and Rivka are still here. So big deal. Big deal. One pioneer of a community passed away. Big deal. One teacher retired, moved away. Somebody made Aliyah. Big deal. Look at all who were left behind. The answer is no. Even when there are other tzaddikim in the city, but when a tzaddik leaves with their individual unique contribution to the dynamic and the environment of that community, Kamash Malan, that makes an impression. Right? So the Kliyakar is answering two questions. Why did we not make this comment for Avram and Yitzchak when they left? And why isn't it an insult to Yitzchak and Rivka to make the comment now? He's answering both. That I might have thought Dafka, that Yitzchak and Rivka remain. Therefore, it doesn't leave an impression. Even with Yitzchak and Rivka remaining, it does. That's the message of the Medrash. That's the message of Rashi. Continue the next paragraph. Or you could answer the opposite way. When Avram and Yitzchak left a place, whom did they take with them? Everybody, their whole family. They traveled together. So who was left? The original inhabitants of the city. The original inhabitants of the city were not righteous. They certainly didn't even notice that a tzaddik had left. They, didn't, they were insensitive to notice the impact of the fact that the righteous person left. But now that Yaakov left, oh, to Yitzchak and Rivka they say the place is no longer the same. Our Yaakov left. Our Ishtam Yoshev Oalim is no longer here. He's not home anymore. Now the community is different. So when Avram Yitzchak left, the people actually were grateful. Their conscience was gone. They no longer had to feel bad. Their guilty conscience had left. They were grateful. Good riddance, Avram Yitzchak. Get lost. Leave. We don't want you here. We don't want to be reminded of of you as a role model. But when a righteous person remains, they feel the impact of the righteous person who is left. Okay, that was a second. A third suggestion of the Kliyakar. 
דבר אחר, וכך יזכיר כאן לשון יציאה ובמקום אחר, וירד אברהם מצרימו. שארץ ישראל מקום גול לשכינו עשו יסבורך, והולך משם ירידהו לו, ויצאים מן הקו השבוי. כה יציאו מן המקום שרואה לי עוזבו, כמו אני יוצא בסוף מצרים. נמצא שיציאו זו, עושה סרושם גם בו בעצמו. When Avram left, he left Israel to go down to Egypt. Egypt is, is a descent, not only geographically or topographically, Egypt is a descent spiritually. So he left a Roshim on Avram. He left a Roshim on Avram. However, יש זוגו שהולך אליו ויש הלך איצו זוגו. יעקב הלך איצו זוגו. שנאמר ויצא יעקב מבאר שבע. ואיך למה מפסק זה שהולך איצו זוגו? בברוך הוא בני עשו. אין זה קימקושס ויצא יעקב וילך מבוא אלי. וכריכו למה שיעקב היה מסלק מחשבה שם מכל וכל ממקום מגור עשו ואימו. הקרינק היוצא למה שיוצא מכל וכל. לפוקי הולך מאיזה מקום ודאי תלחסור אז לא למחשבה שם משותפת במקום שהלך שם. יעקב left with no intent to turn back. He left it behind. He moved on. Avram was going to come back. So it's Yaakov who, when he left, made the Roshem because he had no intent to come back. The Kliyakar brings a fourth reason, but we'll, we'll stop there. You can look in the Kliyakar for the rest. So Yaakov leaves in order, to, in order to head out. How long is he gone? Where is he going now? He's going to Haran. He took a little detour. Where was he? Right? Why was he so tired that he fell asleep? Because when was the last time he had slept? When was the last time he had slept? 14 years ago. Does it mean literally he hadn't slept in 14 years? Why was it that he hadn't slept in 14 years? Because he was learning. Where was he learning? In Yeshiva Shem Ve'ever. Why did he need to learn in Yeshiva Shem Ve'ever? Look at Rashi. Let's read the next Pasuk first. He encountered the place and he slept there for the sun had set. He took from the stones of the place, he put them under his head. And he lay down in that, in that place. Look at Rashi. Look at Rashi. He slept in that place. That's a Lashon Miut. That comes to exclude. Meaning, he slept only in that place, but he hadn't slept. Says the Medrash, he hadn't slept in the last 14 years because he was in Yeshiva. Which Yeshiva, Shem Ve'ever. 14 years. Does it mean literally he hadn't slept? It means he didn't sleep... Uh, he, he was a yeshiva bachar who was so consumed by his learning that he minimized his sleep or that he was thinking of learning in his sleep or he slept on the bench in the base medrash, whatever it means. But he hadn't had the same quality sleep like he finally had when he left the base medrash and, uh, and was on his way. Why did he need 14 years? Oh. Loshach of Balayla. He chapped a drimmel during the day, but he didn't sleep at night. You're right, you're right. Rashi specifically says Balayla. But I think the assumption is he, hadn't, he, he, good, he had this good sleep after 14 years because he hadn't slept well at all. But you're right, maybe, maybe. 14 years. Why did he need 14 years in Yeshiva? Ask the Emes Lyankov, Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky. Why did he need 14 years in Yeshiva Shem Ve'ever? After all, where did he just emerge from? Where did he just travel from? His father's house. Who was his father? 
Only the greatest Rosh Hashiva of his generation, Yitzchak, the son of Avraham, he had been studying, learning at his father's feet. He needed 14 year hiatus before he could get. He was heading to Haran. His parents gave him strict instructions where to go. Why did he make a pit stop for 14 years? Asks Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky. Says Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky, a fantastic answer, Emes Yaakov. He writes, the learning of Yitzchak, the atmosphere, the theme, the teaching of the Beis Medrash of Yitzchak was very different than Shem Ve'ever. Yitzchak was a korban ola. He was a tamima, an ola tamima. Yitzchak was a wholesome, pure, protected soul. Yitzchak, we know, never left Eretz Yisrael. He wasn't allowed to. He had been brought as a korban ola, an ola tamima. Yitzchak was almost offered as a sacrifice. He was so holy. He was so sacred. He wasn't allowed to leave Eretz Yisrael. In fact, that's why some of the commentaries say Yitzchak's the one who bestowed brachas. Avram wasn't, and Yaakov wasn't. Yitzchak was, because Yitzchak was the only one positioned to give the brachas, because Yitzchak was so pure, he had never left Israel. Yitzchak's base medrash was a base medrash for the Erlacha, insular, protected, ghetto-minded yeshiva bachar who would not encounter or engage the outside world. Who were Shem Ve'ever? Where did Shem grow up? Shem grew up in Noach's house. Shem grew up exposed to the generation of the flood, the Mabul. Aver grew up exposed to the generation of the Doraflaga, the generation of those who were pursuing the tower. They understood evil and wickedness, nefarious people with their wicked plans. They understood how to identify and avoid and protect and, and uh, live life with values even in a world that is assaulting your, your hashkafa. So where did Yaakov have to stop, said Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky. Where did Yaakov have to stop on his way to Lavan? The learning in Yitzchak's home did not properly prepare him for Lavan. He needed to stop in 14 years. I guess he had a lot to learn about how to survive a Lavan's home. He learned well, by the way. Yaakov holds his own. Even after Lavan tricks him numerous times, Yaakov ends up holding his own. He learned well in Yeshiva Shem Vever. I think it's important, Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky, about the mentality in our yeshivas that we have to prepare people for re-entry. It's easy. It's easy in a yeshiva environment to be holy, to be a masmid, to learn Torah, to daven with kavana, to be honest, to be scrupulous with Lashon Hara. It's easy in the yeshiva environment. But we, our yeshivas have to prepare people for going out to universities or secular graduate schools or being part of the um, corporate America law firm that it's so we need a yeshiva our yeshivas have to have an element of Yitzchak and they have to have also the teachings of Shem Ve'ever to prepare our Bracham to go out as well so Yaakov Vayifka Bamakom he encounters a place Lo Hizkir HaKosov Be'ezim Makom I'm in Rashi again the Torah does not tell us which place Torah says Yaakov stopped at a place he encountered a place Son said he encountered a place he went to Shluf. What place? Where does Yaakov go? Yaakov goes to the Makom, which Rashi identifies as Har Hamoria. What place is this Vayifka Bamakom exactly? Rashi says Har Hamoria. Where's Har Hamoria? Yerushalayim, where in Yerushalayim? 
It's the headlines in the news these days. It's because of this place, allegedly, that uh, Jews are hatcheted to death in Harnof and stabbed in Tel Aviv and killed outside Alon Shvut and so on. Why? All because of this place. What's this place? Harabayas, the Temple Mount. So Rashi says, where is this Bamakom? The Temple Mount. What's the problem? Shortly we're going to identify this place as, when Yaakov wakes up, he calls the place Beit El. Anyone here ever been to Beit El? Me too. It's fantastic. Go visit Beit El. Outside of Beit El, there's a, a huge sign at the entrance to Beit El. Beit El is, of course, a gated community because it's in a dangerous neighborhood. And outside of Beit El, there's an enormous billboard. It's an incredible billboard. It says, long before... I'm, gonna, I'm not going to do it justice. I took a picture of it. Somewhere on my phone I have the picture of it. I'm not going to do it justice, you'll excuse me. But it says on it something like, you know, long before anyone was living in London or Washington was the capital of America or this was this... 3,300 years ago, Yaakov, lays, our forefather Jacob, lay his head to rest in, in Beit El and had a dream of a ladder going up. Long before any of these other places, Jews were in Beit El. Our forefather Jacob had a, had a sleep and had, this, and had this dream. It's an incredible sign. It just it transforms it from a town, a neighborhood, uh, into a biblical landmark. It's an amazing sign. Anyway, so the problem is, where is this Makom? Is this Makom Haramoria? Is the Makom Beersheva? Is the Makom Beit El? Where exactly is it? We're not going to investigate this. Oh, so Rashi's understanding that Yaakov's calling Haramoria Beit El. This is the house of God. The problem is, we also have a Beit El, a biblical Beit El, and it's not Yerushalayim. So, do we have two names for it? In other words, we have the actual Beit El, and then we have Yaakov's calling this place Beit El because it resonates for him. This is the house of Hashem. So this is a discussion. I'm not going to get into it now, but articles have been written on it about where exactly did this dream take place? Is it Hara Moriah? Did it happen on the Temple Mount? Did it happen on what we call Beit El? Did it happen in Beersheva? Or possibly, we have Mepharshim who say that it happened in all three. Why? How could that be? Because you have a ladder. So you have the base of the ladder where Yaakov's sleeping. You have the top of the ladder where in the dream it's Magia Shamaima. Where is that in terms of its parallel on earth? And then you have the middle of the ladder, the Malachim Olimvi or Dimbo. So according to some commentaries, the middle of the ladder is over Yerushalayim, is over Haramoria. The top of the ladder is over Beit El, and the base of the ladder is Beersheva. So, where exactly is this place? Where exactly did this dream take place? You know, I, I'll tell you, I was curious about this. And that's why I investigated, read these articles. Because, um, because when I saw that sign in Beit El a few years ago, I had always learned and I always remembered that Har HaMoriah. Right? Avram brought Yitzchak to the Akedah on Har HaMoriah. Yaakov had his dream on Har HaMoriah. That we were on the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount was our sacred place from which the origins of the universe, long before anyone else ever cared about it. So then when I saw that sign at Beit El, I thought, what's that? What do you mean? The dream happened here? I thought it happened there. So you see, it's a big discussion. It's worthy of looking at. Anyway, Vayifka Bamakom. This Vayifka, says Rashi, the next Rashi, Vayifka is Lashon Tfila. Vayifka is Lashon Tfila. What did he do there? Vayifka Bamakom. 
He found, he encountered a place. Encounter is another word for prayer. Continues Rashi. Lamadnu shetikein tefilas arvis shinakosav lokosav ispalel lamet chasha kafzelo aaretz k'moshem before his perikid anasha. Here Yaakov institutes the evening prayer. Yaakov ayashkem Avram b'boker. Yaakov Avram instituted shacharis. Vayetze Yitzchak lasuach basada. Yitzchak instituted mincha, which we saw was the most holy prayer, the most potent prayer. And Yaakov here institutes mar vayifka. We saw. I've been telling you about this great sefer we learn on Wednesday mornings. You can listen online. Uh, called Sha'aram Betfila, Rav Pinkus investigates the 13 synonyms for prayer, and this is another one of them. Vayetze Yitzchak Lasuach, Sicha was one. Vayifka Bamakom, Pigia. What's Vayifka? How is that a for- To encounter. How is prayer an encounter? A rendezvous, a connection, a discovery. What form of prayer exactly is that? That's worth looking at Rav Pinkus the way he the way he develops it. Yes, Sarah. Oh, maybe, excellent. So I was gonna, we're going to get to that in a moment. Maybe Makom is a reference to a name of God. Maybe it's ambiguous by design. Why doesn't the text, why doesn't the Torah tell us specifically where we're talking about? Because maybe Bamakom is not a geographical place. We know Makom is one of the names of God. Why would the Torah employ that name of God here? And that would, by the way, make sense. Vayifgam makom means he prayed Bamakom to God, the name of God. But why specifically here would we need that, would we employ that name of God? We will, we'll get back to that. We'll get back to that. Vayifgam makom. look at the Balaturim. It says the Balaturim of Yaakov ben Asher, Gimel pa'omim ksiv makom bapasuk. It says place three times in the verse. Remez, this is a hint. What do we do three times at that place? This is a hint. This is foreshadowing the three times a year, the three times a year that we will go up to that place, to Har HaMoriah, to our sacred temple mount, the place that is the most significant to us. Says the Sforno, What does it mean, How do you, how do you happen upon a place? How do you happen upon a place? You happen upon a place when you weren't intending to go there. Maybe your GPS took you to the wrong place. Maybe you made a wrong turn. Maybe you went through a neighborhood and something caught your eye. When you happen upon a place, says the Sforno, Karolo, it happened. He arrived at a place that he had not intended. What does it mean? Bamakom says the Sforno. This is a geographic place. And the Sforno does not say it's a reference to God's name. We'll come back to that. For the Sforno, Makom is a hint to an inn, a place to sleep. Yaakov was tired. And what precipitated Yaakov wanting to go to sleep? What in the, what in the Pasuk? Kibo Hashemesh. Kibar Shemesh means the sunset. There was no electricity. There was no artificial light. When the sun set, your day was over. Of course, they had candles, but your day was over. Yaakov says, the sun sets, time to stop. Pulls over, and he finds an inn. And where were the inns in those days? Barachov, right in the middle of the street. There was a place to sleep. He says, this far, no, that's what's happening. He went past it, and then realized that he's gone past the place where his grandfather had done, but he came back there. Okay. 
Right. Uh, so yeah, the, the, well, the Svarno doesn't see it that way. Svarno sees he was not intending on going there, and he happens upon it. Look at the Klayakar. Klayakar has a lot to say in our parsha. Um, Razal Amru, our great, our great Chazal teacher Chulin, Shezeu Haram Moriyah, Shenemar Bava Yaras Amakam Mirachok, Karol Amakam Mahus Tam Makam, and Fishakom Makam Yesh L'Shem Lavoi, Hashem Baalav, or Hashem Mahus Hamakam. Every place has a name which defines the character, the purpose, the activity, or the owner of the place. Right? Bokraton Synagogue is called Bokraton Synagogue. Why? Because it's a synagogue. That's what you do there. It's a shul. The name of the place defines or describes the main activity or the essence or the owner of the place. Because through its name, it's distinguished from other places. It's called a park. It's called a cafe. It's called a highway. It's called a home. It's called whatever it's called defines its usage, its ownership, and distinguishes it from other places. So this place that Yaakov encounters does not yet have its definition. It's just called Makom. For now, it's a place. It has not yet been defined. Or a second possibility, says the Kliyakar, is This is the Makomo Shel Olam. This is the place of the world. Every other place needs a name to distinguish it. But the, the place doesn't need a name because it is the place. What is in this place? The foundation stone. We have, like Mar tells us, Chazal tell us, that in, it's actually right now exactly underneath the Dome of the Rocks, the Al-Aqsa Max, the uh, foundation stone, there are pictures of it, that uh, the stone from which the universe was created, it precedes the creation, or precipitates the genesis of the creation of the universe. <laughs> whether the whole world was founded on it because all the blessing of the world comes through that place, if that's the place that the Shekhinah is most palpable, if that's the place that God's presence is felt most intensely, then all blessing comes through that place. That's our, that's our most sacred location. It's not, you know, I've been on Harabais twice. There are prayer platforms for the Muslims on Temple Mount. You know where they face? Mecca. That's not a holy place for them. Never was, never will be. They face Mecca. And by the way, written in Arabic on the prayer platforms are a call to destroy Israel. But anyway, and, uh, it, but it is the most sacred place for us. It's the place that's the origin of the universe from which all bracha comes to the world. Yaakov felt, Yaakov anticipated, this is the place the Beisam Mikdash will stand. What gave it away? How did Yaakov know? Because he experienced a miracle there. What miracle did he experience? What unusual, what unusual deviation from nature did he experience? The sun set in the middle of the afternoon. It wasn't yet night. Because this place is so holy, it is the source of light for the universe. It doesn't need the artificial light of the sun. So Yaakov understood, wow, I'm in a holy place. I feel illuminated being here. 
that the sun doesn't need to be high in the sky. It's set. It's set prematurely. The sun needs Arabayas. Arabayas doesn't need the sun. How do you know this? Chazal say in the Medrash, the name of Ravi Avin. Normally, how do you construct a home with windows that are wide uh, on the outside and they are narrow on the inside? Why? Because you want the light of the outside to come and be focused in and illuminate the inside of the house. How are the walls of the base of Mikdash? Sorry, the opposite. You want it to be wide on the on the inside and narrow on the outside, so that the light will come in and then expand and fill the room. The base of Mikdash was the opposite. It was wide on the inside and narrow on the outside. Why? Shia or Yotze Mina Mikdash Olam. So that the light of the base of Mikdash would illuminate the world on the outside. The Mikdash doesn't need the sun. The sun needs the Beis HaMikdash. Beis HaMikdash illuminates, provides light. So Yaakov understood that. And therefore, and therefore, um, So this is Makam. This is a place, a place that doesn't need a name. It transcends a name. It is just the place. It is just the place. Okay. So what does he do? What does he do? He places stones under his head. And he goes to sleep. Look at the Kliyakar. After he knows that this is going to be a house of Hashem, what does he do? He wanted to show that he saw within these stones sanctity. If this is the place the temple will be built, this is no ordinary place. And these are no ordinary stones. And therefore he gathers these stones and he treats them with affection to show, to exhibit that he understands that these stones are not ordinary, but they are extraordinary. And he takes 12 stones opposite the 12 shvatim, and the 12 stones argue, and they form one stone to show that the 12 tribes will argue, but the Beis HaMikdash will be a place of unity. What is the Beis HaMikdash? How many entrances did the Beis HaMikdash have? 13. One for each tribe, and a 13th for those who didn't know which tribe they came from. In fact, the, uh, the Arizal says that his Nusach HaTfilah, we have many Nuschos HaTfilah, many traditions of the Siddur, he said he created his Nusach HaTfilah for the 13th gate. For those who don't know where they come from, this is the unifying Nusach. For everyone to come together, the Nusach Ari is the Nusach that's Kolel, it gathers everybody together. So the Beis Mikdash was a place that allowed for and promoted diversity. There were many entrances, but on the other hand, it was a place of great unity. It was the greatest place of a unified Klal Yisrael, where we gather three times a year and so on. Our Mikdash Me'at, our shuls are modern, modeled after the Beis HaMikdash. 
places of great diversity, places where people can find different ways to enter through chesed, through Talmud Torah, through tefillah, through Israel advocacy, through outreach, through whatever speaks to them, through the afternoon kolal or people of the book or women's health and halacha or through the many, many programs. Yet it's a place while people enter through diverse gates, once there, it's a place of great unity. So how did Yaakov show that? What was this foreshadowing of the Beis HaMikdash? was to gather 12 stones that were at first disparate, at first were separate and in conflict, they became one. This was a symbol of a Beis HaMikdash that would have many entrances, distinguished, disparate, diverse people, but that together would ultimately, would ultimately form one. He, he uh, has this dream of the ladder that extends heavenward. The angels are going up and down. Rashi already points out that it's the opposite of what you would think. You would think the angels would first come down and then go up. Why is that? Because these angels were already here fulfilling their, fulfilling their mission. Hashem is on this ladder. He says, I am Hashem, the God of your father Avraham and of Yitzchak. This land that you're sleeping on, I'm going to give it to you and to your and to your children. Why does it say Elokei Avraham Avicha Elokei Yitzchak? Why doesn't it's not consistent? Yitzchak is Avicha, not Avraham. So the Orachayim deals with this question. Tam Omro Avicha Right, if you're sensitive to the text to ask the right questions, you're bothered by that question. Why does God identify Avram as Yaakov's father, not Yitzchak? Either say both as your fathers, Avram and Yitzchak, or just say Yitzchak, your father. But of all things, why only Avram, Avicha, and not Yitzchak? And why not Elokei Avram and Yitzchak? Why Elokei Avram and Yitzchak? So you can look at the Archaim, he addresses those he addresses those questions. What's the nature of Yaakov's dream? Everybody explains, and others all explain. The nature of Yaakov's dream, it's very, very beautiful, very powerful for us. That God does not want us. Yaakov had just left the cocoon of Yitzchak's home. He was the Ishtam Yoshev Oalim. He was the meek, passive Yeshiva Bachar consumed by the learning of Torah, utterly not exposed to the world around him, not integrated in the world around him. And he now leaves, he's gone through the experience of Yeshiva Shein Ve'ever, and is about to enter the world of Lavan, and the world, this world, he has this dream, and he realizes that the point is not to be Rosho in Bashamayim. The point of life is not to live in the heavens, but God created us here on earth, and to build a bridge, to build a ladder, to be able to unite the two to take the mundane and to elevate it. We don't escape, we don't avoid the mundane, unlike other religions. For us, holiness is not defined by transcending or abandoning the mundane, rather it's embracing the mundane and elevating it. We don't take vows of fasting, we love and enjoy food, we elevate it with a bracha and the discipline of kashras. We don't take a vow of abstinence, our rabbis, our tamid chachamim, our rashi yeshiva, those who we deem holy are not holy because they abstain from physical pleasure. They took a vow of abstinence from marriage. There's a mitzvah to experience physical pleasure in the context of a sacred marriage, in the context of kedusha v'tahara. 
So Yaakov has this dream as he's entering the world to understand that real authentic holiness is not escaping the world, but it's rather living, embracing the world, but elevating that experience. I just want to finish. God says, Your offspring will be Kafar Ha'aretz, and Ufaratsta, they will spread out Yama Vakadim of Tzafon of Anagba in every direction. What is Ufaratsta? The Chazakta. You will be strong. How will you be strong? By spreading out through your reach, by going everywhere. The Ibn Ezra sees Ufaratsta not as you'll be strong, but as you'll multiply. Kemobiravisa, you will promulgate, you'll propagate, you will multiply, you will expand, you will expand. Ufaratsta. To all four directions of the of the world, this is a, it. Never fails that the parsha is so timely with current events. We saw Leah and gratitude and thanksgiving. We talked about Makom Harabayas, the Temple Mount in the news, and here Ufaratsta. This past Sunday night was the great the great uh, Chabad Kinnus, the great uh, gathering. It's an incredible thing. I saw online a picture from 1984. There were a handful of shluchim. And after the Rebbe Zatzal embraced or announced this campaign, what he called Ufaratsta, to spread out across the four corners of the globe, Yama Vakedba Vitzafon of Enegba, this year's picture needs a super wide angle lens, more than 4,000 shluchim. Every state in the United States represented but one. Anyone know which state there's no Chabad house? South Dakota. You know what's shocking about the fact that there's no Chabad house in South Dakota? That there is one in North Dakota. (laughs) That's what's shocking to me. But anyway, it's an amazing, amazing, if you've read, I I read Telushkin's book, Rabbi Telushkin's book about the Rebbe. He has a whole chapter on this campaign of Ufaratsta. The Rebbe literally transformed the Jewish world. Whether you consider yourself a Chabad uh, follower or not, who on a business trip or a vacation has not been so grateful combining our gratitude and Ufaratsta to have kosher food and a minion and a familiar Jewish face and presence to know on the four corners of the globe Ufaratsta Yama Vakedma Vitzafona Benegba it's an incredible thing the last thing we end with this oh there was so much more to talk about we end with this Bamakom why might the Torah have referred to it as Makom why Makom why might Yaakov after what he's just experienced and where he's heading why might it call Makom one of the names of Hashem? Says the Rav in the OU Chumash of the Rav. The paradigmatic figure who found God despite his transcendence is the prophet Yechezkel. Yechezkel's prophetic revelation took place not in the temple nor even in the land of Israel, but rather in a concentration camp in the midst of the bitter Babylonian exile among the captives on the river. Yet despite the fact that it was time of acute Hester Panim, the heavens opened and Yechezkel saw visions of Hashem. When Yechezkel declared, what do we say in Kedusha? Baruch Kvod Hashem, Mimikomo. He was referring to the huge distance between God and His people. Yaakov similarly encountered God in a time of travail. Penniless, fleeing his brother, on the road towards exile, Yaakov perceived God as Makom. Makom is the name for Hashem. Rav Shem says the same thing. Makom is the name for Hashem when you feel like Hashem is far away from you. When Avram takes Yitzchak on the Akedah, what does it say? Vayar es ha-makom me-rachok. He saw Hashem as far away. How could God ask me to do this? What do we say to someone who's mourning? Ha-makom yenachim eschem. 
May the one who you feel is far away from you right now be that source of comfort. So we have this tradition. Yechezkel is in a, it's a harsh description the Rav uses, but a concentration camp. They've been exiled to Babylonia. They're in a camp, a holding camp. And from there, Yechezkel says, Baruch Kvod Hashem, Mimikomo, even Makom, even when one feels far away. So here Yaakov is running away from his brother Esav on the road to exile. He feels like Hashem is Makom, and nevertheless, Vayifka Bamakom. Sometimes you encounter Hashem most when you least expect it. You encounter Hashem most in that Makom. And that's what Yaakov wakes up and he says. When Yaakov wakes up from the dream, what does he say? Vayira. He was afraid. Vayomar. And he says, Manora Hamakom Wow. How awesome. How wondrous is this Makom. Says the Rav. At night, when Yaakov went to sleep, he saw no, no special significance to the stones on earth. So he slept on them. When he awoke the next morning, it was an entirely different place. These were the same cold stones of the previous night, but now his soul sensed their holiness. What is the nature of the singularity of Eretz Yisrael? In truth, there are other places in the world that match or surpass its beauty. What makes the stones of the Western Wall different from limestone everywhere else? Other countries have the same cold stones. The answer is that Eretz Yisrael has a quality of Kedusha that attracts B'nai Yisrael to it. The stones of the Kosal possess this Kedusha. The Jew must be able to feel Kedusha to recognize its greatness. So Manara HaMakom That you can even find Hashem when He feels far away. Sometimes that's when you can get the greatest access to Him. Vayifka He encounters God even when God is only feels like a Makom something which is distant from Him. Everyone's invited to the afternoon. The men are invited to the afternoon. Kolal. People of the book starts tonight. Safer.